Welcome back to another episode of the Into the Night Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 John Landis-directed comedy Into the Night, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Robert Black, but you can call me The Professor. I'm known around this city for my blog, The Groundhog Day Project, two recently completed podcasts, Michael Myers Minute and Dave Made a Minute, and the audacity to take on The Room Minute next. I'm a teacher by day, an adjunct instructor, movie detective by evening, by night, and really by day, even if I'm in the middle of teaching. Movies have been my great love affair, my femme fatale. I show this minute to one of my students. His response to this minute, this situation, was clear. Enter a girl's apartment and it's covered with anyone's face on every surface. You turn right around and leave. This is a Pierce College. It's in the valley. The valley is where dreams go to die. You find your way to Los Angeles, to Hollywood, to make it big, and you end up shooting pornography in the valley. That's a generalization worthy of Harry Lockhart. Another detective you might know if you like your L.A. Noir. Maybe you remember it. What is it? Harry? Out here with these, these women. Oh, please, Harry. They're no different from anywhere else. Yes, they are. These, these are, are damaged, damaged goods, goods, every one of them, from way back. I'm telling you, you take a guy who sleeps with a hundred women a year, go into his childhood, dollars to donuts, it's relatively unspectacular. Now you take one of these gals who sleeps with one hundred guys a year, and I bet you if you look in their childhood, there's something rotten in Denver. It's abandonment. It's abuse. It's my uncle put his ping-ping in my papa, and then they, and then come, they come out here. here. I mean, it's literally like, like someone, someone took America by the East Coast and shook it, and all, all the normal girls, girls managed, managed to hang on. His take is more explicitly sexist than mine, but it's all reductive. It's cliched. Lazy profiling. But sometimes you have to do that to make it in this business. We don't know Diana any better than Ed does when she invites him into this apartment, which turns out to not even be hers. A few minutes ago, when Ed asked where she lives... She told him to go to the marina. You know how many marinas are near Los Angeles? You know how big and sprawling Los Angeles is? What is often specified as greater Los Angeles is huge. That's why the traffic sequence early in this film is so evocative. For me, anyway. Los Angeles loves its cars, loves its roads, its freeways, its parking lots, even. And this movie has a lot of parking lots. A lot of dark streets. In Los Angeles, if you want to go somewhere, especially before Uber, or Lyft, before we had some semblance of a subway and a real public train system worth using, but still today as well. You want to get where you want to get when you want to get there. And the easiest way to do that is to have your license in your own car and just grab your keys and go. She says Marina, and I don't know what she means. Ed doesn't know what she means. Does she mean Long Beach? Does she mean San Pedro? Marina Del Rey? And after that dead end, it's Hollywood which is only slightly more specific. Also, as I pointed out last minute, my initial internet search that put the alleyway in Van Nuys was wrong. And the alley is actually in Hollywood. 
behind 7046 Hollywood Boulevard. You can currently find an apartment here. $1,950 for a studio, $2,300 for a one-bedroom. Other than that pricing information, the internet was no help in figuring this out, by the way. Sometimes you gotta do the legwork yourself. I watched the whole movie again and noticed that the turn in minute 25 was off of Hollywood Boulevard. And I see the implicit size of this building and know where to look along that road to find what I'm looking for. Intersection of Hollywood and North Sycamore. Ed turns south onto Sycamore and east into the alleyway. When he and Diana walk away in a few minutes, they head south down a different alleyway that will take them to Hawthorne Avenue. This is Hollywood. Literally on the exterior. And figuratively, in terms of, well, we have no reason to think that the interior of this apartment is in that building. When they exit the parking lot in Charlie's car in a few minutes, they're coming out from under a building marked 7045. Seems to be 7045 Hawthorne, but that building has undergone at least one makeover since 1985. More than likely, the apartment interior is a set in some soundstage in Burbank. It's all fake. Like so much of Los Angeles. No, fake isn't the right word. Put on, maybe. I got my master's in communication studies, wrote my master's thesis on a creation of self on the internet. I'm an identity politics kind of liberal. I imagine the Los Angeles I've grown up in and around as a place where everyone is inventing themselves one day at a time. And that's fitting for film noir. Where mistaken identity or random happenstance can alter one's life on the turn of a dime. Turn of a dime? Is that a thing people say? You can turn on a dime. But it's you turning. Not the dime. Never mind my awkward turn of phrase. I'm just your narrator. Note, of course, that unlike many a noir film, Into the Night has no voiceover narration. Not that Ed's somnambulous come-protagonist role couldn't have had a voiceover. I can imagine it fairly well. The confusion that Goldblum portrays so well could have been left to a voiceover with a very different actor, and still worked. Karen Hollinger explains in film noir voiceover in the femme fatale, quote, The voiceover penetrates into the past of a central male character as well as into his character's psyche in order to arrive at a fundamental truth that is seen as causing an individually and or socially abnormal or destructive situation. This confessional-slash-investigative arrangement is also typically tied to a vaguely psychoanalytic situation, a Freudian talking cure of sorts in which the confessing narrator is somehow relieved of guilt or anxiety by arriving at a sense of truth through confessions to patriarchal authority figures within the film text or to the film audience itself, who seem to be asked to grant a kind of absolution and to act as a curative force. End quote. Jump forward to the climax of this movie, that long hallway at LAX, a hallway I've walked down many a time in my life, when Ed, having had no voiceover, Questions the gunman for answers. Why can't I sleep? Why is my wife sleeping with someone else? This is that same sort of confession. And what figure could be more patriarchal or authoritative than a man with a gun to a woman's head? And I'm finding myself equating these film noir narrators to Us Movies by Minutes podcasters. Why do we choose the movies we choose? What are we expressing, expunging, exercising, in researching what we research, theorizing what we theorize? I took on the assignment of five minutes of this movie having never seen it because I thought that sounded fun. As I wrap my notes, I find myself wanting to tell you listeners not just about this film, but all film. Not just about this noir, but all noir. Not about just these scenes in Los Angeles, but all scenes in Los Angeles. And I want to tell you about myself, but I hide behind prepared words, a scripted disguise that ties all these things together. And, if you're paying close enough attention, I could tell you more about me than if I sat down to tell you about myself more explicitly, more deliberately. Except there is a clear difference between, say, a disguise and a costume. One hides what's inside. One potentially reveals it. 
Hollinger continues, quote, Interestingly, what the confession male narrators of these films search for in their past experiences or psychological condition is a revelation that involves the truth not so much about masculinity, but rather about femininity, end quote. Because I'm getting intrigued by my own choice of outside source here, right back to Hollinger, quote, Like Freud, these films seem to be concerned with ascertaining what the woman wants, finding the essential nature of female difference which often is symbolized in female sexuality, as it is also for Freud. Femininity thus becomes the ultimate subject of the film's discourse. Michel Foucault argues in The History of Sexuality that Western society has attempted to control sex by putting it into a discourse which connected it with a search for truth. According to Foucault, this search for the truth of sexuality while seeming to reveal sexual truth really acts only to mask, deny access to, and assert power over it. The confession is merely one procedure that has been developed for telling a truth about sex, which in fact, masks the very nature of sex itself. End quote. And I want to get sidetracked by all the film noir with such sexual tension you can feel it in the audience and it makes you uncomfortable and arouses you at the same time. Movies like Body Heat, Basic Instinct, Body of Evidence, even classic films that weren't allowed explicit sexuality, like To Have and Have Not, Detective Stories, Thrillers, Adventures, with romance and sex at the core even when not explicitly so. Men and women, intersexual relationships circling around some MacGuffin or another. Jewels, statues, briefcases, microfilm, hard drives, knowledge, power. The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Hollinger continues, quote, Indeed, the male confessors of film noir do seem determined to probe femaleness in order to capture a hidden truth, which is the key not only to female, but to male nature as well. But like Foucault's conception of the ultimately unrevealing truth of Western society's discourses on sexuality, the truth about women uncovered in film noir often fails to reveal real gender difference, or even really to imagine this difference at all. At the same time, the very project of these films, their repeatedly unsuccessful attempts to probe the nature of sexual difference, foregrounds a societal failure to resolve the contradictions inherent in conventional configurations of sexuality and gender difference. End quote. And we're not even inside the apartment yet. It is worth saying before we get inside, as Richard Rayner writes in the Los Angeles Times, December 3rd, 2006, quote, Noir is the indigenous Los Angeles form. It was created here. It grew up here, and from here it spread, not only as a genre, but as a way of looking at life, character, and fate, end quote. Additionally, Rayner calls noir, quote, the flip side to the city's sunstruck myth darker, more ambiguous. As William Faulkner, who did serious L.A. Time, once said, they don't worship money here, they worship death, end quote. I don't know about that Faulkner line, but I get it. Fame is fleeting, and that's what makes it such a draw. You come to L.A. hoping to ignite into something bright and powerful and memorable and then die. Better to burn out than to fade away and all that. As a failed screenwriter, now a teacher, a blogger, a podcaster, I suppose I've chosen to fade away. But the City of Angels is such a wonderful place to fade into. Second one. Diana turns to Ed as she unlocks the door and she invites him in. Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On plays in the background, released June 15, 1973, Marvin Gaye's most successful single from Motown. If we didn't at this point assume that Diana was close to the guy who she was with at the airport, the guy who was killed, we might expect her to be more upset, or in shock. But the song, and the invitation in, feels like something romantic, something sexual. And we know that Ed is married. We know he's not happy. We saw him catch his wife with another man, except, did we? In this Movies by Minutes format, I wonder how that timed. 
Did one podcast team see the discovery as absolutely happening, and then their minutes were over? Did another team see Ed waking up afterward at work and think it a fantasy? It won't be confirmed as memory, really, until the climax of the film. In the meantime, Ed is married. Unhappy, but married. Tired, but married. Many a noir film involved infidelity, but usually we've got to work up to that, or that is a more obvious central theme. I already mentioned Basic Instinct, for instance. Infidelity is expected there because the film establishes its explicit use of sex before it establishes the explicit use of violence. It is a sexual story before it is a detective story. Into the Night is something else. We might expect a romance because you expect a romance in a film like this, but now 27 minutes in, do we expect it to happen now? Not necessarily. By the end of Act 2, maybe, but not here as we end Act 1. Not that Diana won't offer, explicitly or implicitly, but Ed will resist, at least until later, and maybe until the end. And I notice when I pause the minute that Goldblum's head bobs like he is either getting his timing right for his response, or he can hear the music. The music might be incidental, or meant to be incidental. But it's hard to tell since we are in the hallway going into an unoccupied apartment. We are not wherever this music is playing. And it may only be intended as soundtrack music. There for us. And Goldblum's nod timing is coincidental. Ed says no. I'd better be going. Diana holds the door barely open, her attention on Ed behind her. Diana. No. No, not yet. Please, just for a minute. Ed insists, no, I've got to go home and get some sleep. Diana replies, look, just let me get the lights on, okay? I'm sorry, I guess I'm still just a little bit freaked out. Second 17, Diana disappears into the finely opened doorway. Ed starts to follow before she has turned on the light. Her arm comes back into view in the dark doorway, and second 20, she turns on the light. Second 21, we see the red flags all over the walls before Ed does. His attention is on Diana not the various Elvis Presley images everywhere. In this first shot alone of what will turn out to be Diana's brother's apartment, you've got a poster for the 1965 film Harem Scarum, in which Elvis portrays singer Johnny Tyrone, who is enlisted to assassinate an Arab king whose daughter he has fallen in love with. Then a small poster of Elvis in a white suit with decorative large-stitched linework playing guitar, which came in an Elvis Presley poster book news series, which next to it and below it are two different covers for those. Close on Elvis and his microphone, looking a little old and greasy, and a circular image on a white cover, Elvis singing with a white shirt and denim jacket. A couple more small posters above that, mostly out of frame. A whole bunch of smaller images, covering the inside of the door, but with the door open, they are hard to make out. And speaking of making out, above the lamp is a poster book-sized poster of Elvis kissing... someone? He's young, she's young, it takes a little scrolling on Google to figure out that among the many women Elvis Presley kissed in his movies and in his life, this is Ursula Andress, in 1963's Fun in Acapulco. By 1985, I would have probably recognized Andress, though maybe I wouldn't have known her name, from Clash of the Titans. Manimal. Love Boat. I might have even seen one or both of her James Bond appearances, Dr. No and Casino Royale. Finally, just in this first shot, we've got a frame 5 by 7 of Elvis in a classic white jumpsuit on the table by the lamp, and a cloth poster of Elvis in a fancy white jumpsuit and a flower lay. This is from his 1973 performance, Aloha from Hawaii, and it is roughly life-size. Hang it on the wall to the right. Let's Get It On is still playing, and it sounds like it's supposed to be incidental music. If Charlie's apartment just always has music playing, you'd think it would be Elvis's music. Diana closes the door and chains it. The images covering the inside of the door seem like album covers. Ed still doesn't seem to have noticed his surroundings. Second 27, she tells him, make yourself at home, and she walks past him, past us, out of frame. Second 30, we get a reverse angle and I don't even want to try to catalog all of the Elvis images on display. 
Notable among them are posters for 1968's Live a Little, Love a Little, 1963's Fun in Acapulco, and behind some glass shelves 1965's Girl Happy, and a variant poster for 1962's Kit Galahad. There's an Elvis mug, an Elvis head, at least four Elvis statues, some sort of voting poster, more than a dozen trading cards, and some sort of partially three-dimensional ceramic face on the wall. I know she just saw a guy stabbed, but this is the kind of room you explain immediately to anyone who enters. Second 33, Diana opens the door and we cut to inside the room, but it feels more like a closet. I think Diana's brother may have thrown all her stuff into a pile by the door to give her a hint to leave, or maybe she's just a horrible mess. Out of context note, it wasn't her brother who did it. It was Don, but we're barely even going to get to meet him. That same Kid Galahad poster that was in the corner of the larger room is low on the wall here. Among the mess of clothes are some boots, a portable record player, and some pink hair rollers. Diana crouches into frame and looks through the clothes. The camera pans up a little as she doesn't find whatever she's looking for and gets up. Now we see a poster book-sized poster of Elvis and Priscilla at their Vegas wedding, May 26th, 1967. Second 41, we're out in the main room again and Ed has finally noticed the insanity of Elvis pictures and memorabilia everywhere. The coincidence of two of the same variant Kid Galahad posters seemed just that, a coincidence. But as Ed walks past items we've already seen and we get a better angle on the doorway to the bedroom, and more trading cards on the kitchen cabinet. There is also a repeat of the wedding photo we just saw in the bedroom. It's possible the set decorator didn't have as much Elvis as was called for, so some things had to serve in multiple locations. In fact, as Ed keeps walking to a section of wall we haven't seen yet, we get a poster of the Hawaii image, not really a repeat since the one by the front door was cloth, but below it is that same poster of Elvis kissing Ursula Andress that we already saw by the front door. We get a poster for 1967's Easy Come, Easy Go, and another Elvis statue, which Ed starts to pick up. Then second 51, we're with Diana she opens the closet door decorated with a poster for 1968's Stay Away Joe. On the wall to the right, a poster for 1965's Tickle Me. These two might just encapsulate the choice Ed should be making right now, and he ought to choose the closet door and stay away. Second 54, Diana turns on the light in the closet, and we can see yet another Elvis statue on its own shelf to the left of the closet. From its unpainted base, it's hand-carved wood, but painted nice enough it isn't obvious. Diana pulls out what might be a leisure suit to look at, then drops it back in line with the other clothes, and says cute. Second 59, back to Ed, holding that big-chinned Elvis statue and smiling. And the minute ends. I'll talk a little about why Elvis might be in a movie like this next minute. That is all for Minute 27. Incidental music was Some of My Fears by Daisy May, available on freemusicarchive.org under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Once again, I'm Robert Black. Some folk call me the Professor. Check out lemmingdrops.com to see all the stuff I've been up to, including my latest podcast, The Room Minute. You can find the Into the Night podcast on iTunes and Google Play, or check out nightminute.com. Follow at Night Minute on Twitter, or join us on Facebook in the King Lives Listener's Limo. Join us again here next time on the Into the Night Minute. Do we thank you or what? I'd say I fall in the or what category.